<laughs> I don't think I actually need this. Um, <laughs> my name is Miranda. I'm doing the scripture today. Um, today's passage is from Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill it to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Awesome. Um, hello. Uh, you might be wondering why there's a picture of someone else behind me. It's a good question. Uh, I'll get there. Hold, hold your horses. Um, just want to say welcome to RUF. Uh, how are we doing? Okay, good. Nodding. That's okay. It's, it, it got rough last week, and it's going we'll to we'll get to spring break. Okay, just hold on tight. Um, just real briefly, my name is Sid Druin, uh, and I'm the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. It's a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus and you all, wherever you are and whoever you are, and we mean that. We don't want to be a ministry that represents one kind of person. We want to represent the entire campus, every kind of person. So what that means is that you can be from any personal background, and we hope you feel welcomed. You can be from any social scene or any other kind of scene on Davidson's campus, and we hope you feel welcomed. Um, and we really mean that, and we mean that to the point even where you don't have to share um, a belief in Jesus or Christianity. You could be convinced or unconvinced. You could be a, a believer or a spiritual skeptic. Uh, you could think those categories are annoying, none of the above, thank you very much, somewhere in between, a smear of sorts. You could do whatever you want there. And we're really glad that you're here and you're with us and you've chosen to take some time with us. Um, and if you're, especially if you're new, thanks for coming. Um, and I know we do that intro a lot, but I think it's really important to remind ourselves of what we're up to. Uh, and part of that, what we're up to, is looking at the Sermon on the Mount uh, by Jesus. So it's a really famous speech by arguably the most famous person in world history and arguably the most famous book in the history uh, of the world, the Bible. Um, and we're going to continue full speed ahead through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, however, uh, I'm not going to be doing this, this installment, hence why there's a picture of someone else behind me. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I just want to introduce uh, our special guest who's going to do something special for us, namely, let me be quiet and <laughs> let him talk. So Pastor Michael Flake is with us. A lot of you know who Michael Flake is, uh, but I'm going to give you some details that you may or may not know before we get to the things that you do know. Uh, I, I, Michael almost spit out his Dr. Pepper in the back. I don't know if you saw that, but <laughs> he's like, oh, no. I did some deep diving <laughs> on the Internet. I'm just kidding. Uh, so Michael is from Memphis, Tennessee. I don't know if you guys knew that. Um, he attended Davidson College uh, back in the days when I attended Davidson College. We overlapped for a year. Um, I don't feel like we knew each other well. Uh, we actually have gotten to know each other in the last few years since I came back, and Michael was here, had just kind of come back a couple years before me. And kind of Michael and I's story is that we like to get lunch together, and we like to talk about whatever for a long time. <laughs> I know that's shocking if you know either of us. <laughs> so uh, we like to talk about things we don't know a lot about. Uh, that's called speculation in some circles. Uh, 
and I, I actually think to be able to, to lunch for a long time and talk about things that you're not super comfortable with, with someone means you're comfortable together. And so I count Michael as a good friend, and I'm really excited to have him come and speak to you from the scripture today. Um, also, just real briefly, Michael is married to Mandy, and they just had a child named Indy, who is about one years old, a little over. Uh, he'll clarify some of those details, I'm sure. <laughs> but could you just welcome Michael up? Thank you so much.
so that's kind of us. That's kind of me. Mandy and I met in 2012. Uh, we started Lake Forest Davis in 2011. So you may or may not know this history, but I graduated in 2006, went to seminary, came back, was the missions pastor at the Lake Forest in Huntersville, uh, two towns down, and then started Lake Forest Davidson with a team of 50 people in 2011. And then got married six months later, which again, you'd think timing would work out better in my life, but it does <laughs> not. That was a busy, busy season. We love that when y'all, uh, some of y'all, I know come to Lake Forest Davidson, which is a real treat, but there's other great churches in the area too. My, my big thing, I think, since too, is just you get involved in some church somewhere where you feel like you kind of grow. Uh, it's really great to hang around with people who are 18 to 22, and one of the gifts of a local church is people who aren't 18 to 22. That's the, really the one thing we have to offer. Um, uh, so that's that. So Sermon on the Mount, let's do that. Uh, so there was a, uh, you probably know this old story, that the preacher who started at a new church and the first week, the preacher stands up, gives this sermon. And everyone's like, oh, that's a good sermon, you know. We're glad we got the new preacher. Then the next week, the preacher stands back up uh, for the second week and does the uh, what sounded to the congregants like the exact same sermon. And they think, oh, maybe a head injury. <laughs> and then, then the third week goes by, preacher stands up, gives the exact same sermon. At this point, one of the leaders of the church pulls the preacher aside and says, Preacher, couldn't help but notice you've given the same sermon three weeks in a row. And the, uh, the preacher said, Yes, and when we get that one down, we'll move on to the next one. <laughs> and let me, t honestly, we've, thought, we've all thought about doing that. We've all thought about doing that. Uh, I bring that up simply to say, that's kind of how I view the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did a lot of things. But Jesus, uh, very few things that Jesus did are kind of described by the church historically as a sermon. This is one of the very few. And my sense of it is when we get this one down, you know, we can move on to the next one. There have been tomes upon tomes upon tomes written about the Sermon on the Mount. And part of the reason for that is the tricky thing called interpretation, uh, which is to say, and this freaks some people out, but I don't think it's a very scary thing necessarily. Between reading what the scripture says and deciding what to do with it, there's an in-between step, and that's called interpretation. And you can do that well, you can do that poorly, but the step is there. And uh, you know this. In fact, you deal with interpretation. I deal with interpretation in your life all the time because you will have this discussion with a friend, a family member, a parent, a sibling, a, a, a significant other, a spouse, perhaps one day, a sibling. Probably doesn't have this issue, but I, I do. And it goes like this. Person A will say, uh, well, you said da-da-da-da. And person B will say, that's not what I said. And person A will be, yes, that is what you said. And person B will say, well, that's not what I meant. You've ever had that exchange? That's interpretation. <laughs> that even when we agree upon what the actual words were, we don't agree on what they meant. And to understand what they meant, we need context, the larger context. So my little passage for tonight, I'm going to venture to say is not all that hard to understand. Like if you read it, if, Israel, if I went and handed it to the average Davidsonian, and said, what does this mean? You, you could fuss around and give me like a little bit of a, a, a sense of what it means. So what I want to spend a lot of my time doing is talking context, and then we're going to, the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the context of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, and then I want to get to my passage. Does 
that make sense what I'm going to do? So that's what we're going to do. I'm sure Sid has already done some of this work, so I will reiterate or put on a slightly different spin on it. Part of the, the good thing of being learning from multiple people is uh, the same reason I think they put four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four stories of the life of Jesus. Because when you're trying to see a three-dimensional object and all you have are photographs, you need a lot of photographs to try to understand what the three-dimensional object really looks like. So let's talk Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is three chapters long. It is very dense. People disagree on what it's about. I think the interpretive key to understanding the sermon is the last little bit, which you haven't learned about yet. But the last little bit of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, imagine two people go out to build houses. One builds it on a rock, one builds it on a sand. When the storm comes, the house on the rock survives, the house on the sand goes splat. And then he, he turns that around and says, um, essentially, you are building your life on something. And I want it to be something firm. And that means, in Jesus' words, uh, to, to listen, hear these words of mine and put them into practice is what the wise, he says, man, the wise person does to build their house on something solid. So Jesus makes this crazy turn at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in which he basically says the quest for wisdom, the human quest for wisdom boils down to one thing, him and what you do with him. Now, this is a bold claim, if you ask me. This is one of those moments where um, <coughs> when a lot of us start to learn about Jesus or attracted to Jesus, something we see about him is that he is a, he is a guru. He is someone of a, a great moral individual, great moral teacher. I don't disagree. I think he is that. But then he says things like, uh, the quest of wisdom boils down to me. And that's the moment where I get a little uncomfortable. <laughs> Just leaving him in like the good moral teacher category. And that's kind of a fork in the road uh, when he says very bold things like that. And so I read the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus talking and talking and talking, painting a picture of what life looks like following him, painting a picture for people. Here's what it looks like to be my disciple. Here is a life you may not have even imagined possible, but here is this life. He paints this picture of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And then at the very end he says, and you can be one. And what that looks like is to make me the foundation of your life. So I take the whole Sermon on the Mount to be a question of foundations. What is the foundation of your life? What is the foundation of my life? What is the thing on which we are building? Are we building upon Jesus, a trust of Jesus, a trust of Christ, of where he's leading us? Or are we building it on something else? And Jesus' interesting little point in that is it'll all, any foundation works when the weather is nice. And it's when the weather gets rough, it's in the seasons of life that get rough, the hard seasons of life, uh, which this may be one for you or this may not be one for you, but I can guarantee you they are coming. You know, <laughs> you know, one day, I, no, actually I pray this doesn't happen to you, you will have a child born without the middle wall of her heart. And you will, you will have to decide on what foundation are we building our lives? How do we make sense of this? And then that's when you will, the foundation will get tested in some very real ways. And that will happen to each of us. So Jesus is saying when the foundation gets tested, you need a, a solid one. And so I take the whole sermon of Jesus asking us, what is the foundation of our lives? Now, when you actually read the Sermon on the Mount, that's not always how it comes across until you get to the very end. Because a lot of the Sermon on the Mount is, comes across like do's and don'ts. Like uh, the 
previous ones you probably been studying don't uh, murder people, which many of you are doing excellently at. <laughs> uh, but then he takes it a step further and he says, well, don't actually don't hate, don't don't uh, don't uh, cuss it, cuss people out. You know the the little rocket thing. Uh, don't commit adultery. But then he goes further and says, don't commit uh, ocular infidelity. I suppose you might call it. So uh, so he takes it the next step. So it comes, and then later it says, don't judge others, and don't give your pearls to swine. Again, something many of you are doing excellently at. So, uh, so you have all these things going on. And it comes across a lot of do's and don'ts. So if I'm saying the whole Sermon on the Mount is about what's the foundation of your life, on what foundation am I building, then the question is, well, how do all the do's and don'ts fit into that? Because if you know anything, I mean, if you come to Lake Forest Davidson, you listen to Sid, or generally Christian ministers and Christians generally were always like, it's not about do's and don'ts. You know, it's, it's about a relationship. You know, we get real big on all this kind of stuff. And then you start reading it, and it's like, seems like a lot of do's and don'ts in here. <laughs> and so what are we to do with all these, uh, with all these do's and don'ts? Because in the end, I do think it's about, it's a relationship. It's about knowing and being known by your creator. Uh, I, I heard uh, someone sharing with me that they they uh, they grew up. I get people to get, tell me their stories all the time. So it's one of the. Do you ever become a pastor? It's, it's worth it because you can just get to hear people's stories. So someone told me as a kid they felt like they grew, they went to a Christian school growing up. So like they were they had all the like the knowledge. They knew verses in the Bible and all this kind of stuff. But they said they would go to sleep like as they would fall asleep. And this was like in their early teenage years. They would like secretly wish they could hold God's hand. And, and in retrospect, as this person grew up and reflected on that, it was sort of like, I've got all this like knowledge about what this is. I have some, some ideas on some things. But I, don't, I, I wish I felt an actual relational closeness to God. I, I wish I was known by God and felt known by God. Knew myself to be known by God. So I do think at the heart it's relational. It's about a relationship with God through Christ. And, and one of the words the Bible uses for this is reconciliation. Again, these are very relational terms. Uh, Jesus says in uh, John 15, I don't call you servants. I call you friends. These are relational terms. Uh, God, the, God the Father. Again, some people have great experiences with their father. Some people don't on earth. But a father is a relational term. So there's all these relational terms. And then we get stuck with these do's and don'ts. What are the points of the do's and don'ts? So let me suggest the, the three, and then I'll get to my little passage. The first uh, thing that do's and don'ts in the Bible historically have been understood to do is to limit harm. Uh, and I think the passage, I wrote this one down. Let me read this so I don't get it wrong. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says, The law, which is usually how the Bible itself refers to the do's and don'ts, the law was our guardian until Christ came. So the sense of what the law or the do's and don'ts do is a guard. Allah, those of you who are pre-med uh, would know the Hippocratic Oath, which is do no harm and then charge for it. That's the corollary to the Hippocratic Oath we figured out. Because I will tell you, when you have a little girl who's born five weeks early, uh, with not the end of her colon, no but a wall in her heart. We added up what we would have paid without insurance to the hospitals last year. Seven figures. And I and 
pastor of you know a moderately sized church, so I only get paid. <laughs> so I couldn't. I, I it would have taken two years to have paid off that million dollars. <laughs> so thank goodness we had insurance. <laughs> so, uh, so generally speaking, one of the things that the law does is it, um, the law uh, again it guards, it protects. And you can think of it this way: as Sid said, if if you're here and you're uh, not a Christian, you're considering Christ you're thinking about it or you're not sure you know what you want to do with all the boxes yet that you know, that's fine uh, but even if you were to take something away from something Sid taught or something I taught what I'm about to teach about this passage if you went and applied it to your life or it kept you from doing something uh, that would have brought harm it succeeded like left to ourselves we have the ability to create harm in this world it's one of the things we show ourselves to be very good at again and again and again and so, for instance, uh, when I preached the Sermon on the Mount at, at the church a few years back, uh, when I preached the don't commit adultery, if you walk in and uh, you're not a Christian, but you were thinking about uh, uh, cheating on your spouse and, and uh, hurting your marriage, hurting your kids, you know, which is what the outfall of all that does, and you hear Jesus say, don't commit adultery, uh, in fact, don't even tempt yourself the way you're tempting yourself with it, and you decided not to, that's good. It limited harm. It, it brought a little bit of heaven to earth in the way that you acted. So that's generally the first idea, limiting harm. The second uh, thing that do's and don'ts the law is good for is pointing out our need for Christ. And the verse I have there is Romans chapter 10, verse 4, which says Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Righteousness conferring like a right relationship with God. So it says Christ is the culmination of the law, that actually all the do's and don'ts are pointing you to Jesus Christ. And how could that be the case? Well, here's my little example. Let's say uh, you, you come tonight and you get really fired up, you know, because that's what I do. I fire people. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're, you leave here and you're like, I'm not going back to the library. I'm not going back. I am going to go do everything Jesus says to do. I'm going to do this. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to live at harm out the wazoo. So, so you walk down and you're walking out of the union and the person in front of you forgets to keep hold the door and it slams and like mashes your finger. And you say, idiot, what an idiot. Well, you were doing great until you got to the door of the union. And this is kind of what happens. As soon as your eyes are like, get up the gumption to be like, I'm going to do everything Jesus says to do. I'm going to be awesome at it. You, that'll work really good for about three minutes. You may even get to five minutes if you, you know, you're real uh, spiritual. But at some point, it just starts to fall apart. And when it starts to fall apart, that... It, forces us back to the question of, well then, it, how can I know God? How can I be right with God? How can I be reconciled to God? How can all this harm that I've contributed to in the world, uh, how can that and, and a relationship with God coexist? And, and what it gets you to the point of saying is, well, it can't all depend on me. I need this to depend on something else. Uh, I, and, and that's what the scripture says when it says Christ is the culmination of the law. Again, so that everybody, uh, what's the, let me read it so I get it right. Uh, oh man, my notes are scrambling. Yes, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness 
for everyone who believes. So that Christ is the one who makes us right with God. And he does so through our, our belief or our faith or our trust in him. Those are all, you translate the word belief, faith, or trust. It's all the same word in the original Greek. So when you hear belief, you just sub in faith, just sub in trust. And then the very third thing that the law often does is, uh, uh, here it is, guide your character growth as a follower of Jesus. So it limits harm. It points you to your need for Jesus, not just your want for Jesus. I, you know, it's easy to be like, man, I'm doing awesome and I want Jesus. It's like an added bonus. But the law, the do's and don'ts are supposed to get you and me to the place where we realize it's not just that I want him, it's that I need him. I need him to make me right with God. I need his uh, sacrifice through his life, through his death, through his resurrection to make me right with God. And then, thirdly, it guides your character growth as a follower of Jesus. Because, again, he's painting this picture of what you could be, of what your life could be. And he's saying, follow me. Let's walk together into this picture. When I was on sabbatical, one other thing that happened uh, is I got to hear a pastor from the Congo speak, a guy named Pastor Paul. And he found himself burdened after years of always trying to do the right thing. Trying to do the right thing, trying to do the right thing, trying to do the right thing. And he got to a point where he just could not anymore. And he cried out to God for help. And this was his quote. When I asked for God's help, I experienced his grace for the first time. I thought that was some hard-earned wisdom. When I asked for God's help, I experienced his grace for the first time. And, and a large part of what the law, the do's and don'ts, are trying to get you and I to is a place where we do that, where we have to cry out for God's help. And in crying out for God's help, experience his grace for the first time, or the first time in a long time, or maybe the first time today, whatever the case may be. So within that context and that context, we finally made it to the passage. It's always scary when this thing's going on about this long. I haven't even gotten to the thing on the screen. Okay. But I told you this isn't that hard. We're going to knock this out pretty fast. Jesus teaches, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Does anybody have a Bible open? I don't know if he was following the Bible or not. So I was going to ask anybody if they had a footnote there. Um, when, you, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, typically, or throughout the Bible, they'll put footnotes when they're quoting somewhere else in the Bible. So you remember the portions right before this, Jesus says, don't murder, actually don't hate. I'm just paraphrasing here. Uh, don't commit adultery, uh, actually don't look lustfully at people. Uh, so now he moves on to this one. And he says, uh, you have heard, said long to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill the Lord the vows you have made. Now, there's no footnote there in the Bible. This is a confusing part of the Sermon on the Mount because he's been quoting things from the Old Testament and then expanding on them. There's no footnote there because that, the little quote there, do not break your oath, but fulfill the Lord the vow you've made, that's not in the Old Testament. It's not a quote anymore. He's not quoting the Old Testament anymore. So the question is, where did Jesus get this little expression from? We don't know. Uh, and I scoured. Like, I was looking through what the rabbis taught and everything. It's not clear where this little expression came from. 
Now, there are verses in the Old Testament that sound like this, that, that get this same point across. So I kind of have wondered to myself, is it something like, uh, what is that little, um, what is the expression, you'll hear some people say today, I'm trying to think of a modern example, like, um, let go and let God. You know, like, that's not in the Bible. Uh, but people will use that as kind of a nice summary of something that sounds like it might be in the Bible. The, kind of the concept is in the Bible, you see. So I think that's my best guess what this is. Jesus is quoting a, a, an example of something that might, uh, probably what at that time was a, a popular paraphrase of a biblical concept. Okay, so he quotes this bit of conventional wisdom, and then he says, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All right. So what's he getting at there? Well, there's an interesting way you could think to interpret this, which is previously he said don't murder, don't commit adultery. These are in the Ten Commandments. And now he's saying, don't swear these oaths by swearing them on God, uh, by heaven, by earth. Because he keeps relating these things back to God. There's a way to interpret this to say, Jesus is pointing out the ways in which sometimes uh, this is a way that we use God's name in vain. Which is another one of the Ten Commandments. That's a little layered if you wanted it. If you don't want it, that's fine. But there's a way to interpret this which would be... Uh, Jesus pointing out the ways that sometimes we go at that commandment, which is taking the Lord's name in vain. And what does he mean by this? Well, it would appear the people of that time, uh, for instance, imagine you're in the market or whatever, you say, well, I will pay you back. I swear by heaven I will pay you back. All right. Are you, you're, you're in class, and can I borrow your laptop or whatever? I don't know what you borrow in class. <laughs> uh, when I came here, we just had, like... Metal tools and things. So, uh, but would you be would you be willing to loan me this that, or the other? Uh, well, I swear by Earth, I will give it back to you. <laughs> but that's not the expressions we use. But we say things like, I mean, what do we say? we say? I swear to God. It's a very I sw I swear to God, I'm telling you the truth. Or I you know I swear on my grandmother's uh, holy Bible or you know whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I swear on all that is holy. We use that exp you know, expression sometimes. And G here's what Jesus is pointing out about this. He says that, that he's pointing out the ways that that could be taking the Lord's name in vain or using the Lord's name for vanity. And then he points out why. It's the very last verse. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So what's Jesus' point here? He, he's, he's doing a little bit of jujitsu here. He's pointing this out. That... If you say, I, 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 swear, I swear to God I'm telling you the truth. The implication of that is, and normally I might not be. <laughs> but right now I swear on my grandmother's Bible I'm telling you the truth. His point is, what, what does it look like to be a person of integrity? That when you say yes, you mean yes. And when you say no, you mean no. And so you don't have to swear on God or the Bible or I'm trying to think of other holy things. Um, uh, 
the counter at tenders, uh, <laughs> super important things like these. Uh, you don't have to do that because, again, your yes is yes, your no is no. That a, you're a person of integrity. So that when you say yes to something, you, I can know. You mean yes. You'll do it. And when you say no, you, you mean no. Other translations will say, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Let your yes mean yes, your no mean no. So, so I take what Jesus is saying here to just say a few things. One, you don't have to swear by anything. Because as a person of integrity, this life into which he's inviting you, calling you, is that when you can say yes and mean yes, say no and mean no. I also think he's giving you permission, he's giving me permission to say both yes and no. This is an important little distinction to make. Because I don't know if you feel this way, but if someone asks you to do something and your answer is yes, what do you say? Yes. If someone asks you to do something and your answer is no, what do you say? You say, well, you know, uh, I have these 58 irrefutable reasons that I don't <laughs> want to do that. And uh, we were, I don't know if it's true of you. When I was a student here, student still, when I'm going to say no to something, no to an opportunity, no to a person, no to a... I mean, I feel like I need a good reason to say no. Now, I don't ever feel like I need a good reason to say yes, but I feel like I need a good reason to say no. So I wonder if part of what Jesus is doing here is, not, is inviting you to be a person who can say both yes and no and really mean it. Because a lot of the trouble I got into, maybe you'll get into, is when your heart and mind say no, but your mouth says yes. And it's one of these little tricky things of being a person uh, of integrity. Now you're like, okay, I'm going to walk out of this room and I'm going to be the person of the best integrity ever. Well, that's going to go really good for, again, about three minutes. And then you'll realize you need Jesus' help. You're going to cry out to God for help. And I pray when you do that, you will experience His grace. That it depends upon Jesus to reconcile you to God. You don't have to do that. You don't have to bear the weight of the world on your shoulders. Jesus did that for you and invites you into God's family. But even though you and I don't bear the weight of the world on our shoulders, we can change. We can be different. We can live more to the, the vision that Jesus is painting of what our lives can look like. And at least in my little passage for tonight, that means being a person of greater integrity, a person whose heart and mind say yes, and so my mouth says yes. Heart and mind say no, and so my mouth says no. And then I don't have to swear on heaven and earth and by my head or you know whatever else. They swear by, we swear by. Our yes can mean yes, and our no can mean no. Does that make some sense? That's my little ramble through this passage. So my question to you would be to just reflect on, I guess it's not really a question, but reflect upon, uh, and I, you already do this intuitively, but reflect on where in all that, uh, what, what would this command of Jesus, to simply let your yes mean yes, your no mean no, simply say yes or no, where does that intersect with your life? Where does that intersect with either limiting harm in your life, with causing you to cry out to God for help in your life, or, or with guiding your growth as a follower of Jesus? Where does that intersect with your life? And with that, I'm going to pray. Let's pray together.
and just to pray to him about what he's stirring in your heart or in your mind. So, Lord, I pray that wherever we might be in our spiritual journey, that we would take the words of Jesus to heart, that they would, would be a, a guiding light to our path. And, Lord, that as we build our lives, I pray we would do it on the solid foundation that is Jesus. And we would take these words to heart to be a little more faithful in how we do that. I pray for those of us who are where Pastor Paul was when he said crying out for God's help was the first time I experienced his grace. I pray your grace would be very close to those who in this moment or a moment in the, the days to come would cry out for your help. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think every time